Welcome to the Brian Thomas Crop Podcast. My name is Brian Thomas Crop, and I believe that stories have a tremendous power for good. And so I write them and I enjoy sharing them with you. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, the way that the show tends to roll is in just a little bit, you'll get to hear a chapter from a, a story that I've written. In this case, it's a chapter from my first novel, Showdown in the Yukon. And then on the other side of that chapter, you get some behind the scenes director commentary kind of how the sausage is made on either writing or things from my uh my life that sort of got in integrated into that chapter in interesting ways or um, how to write a book and how to write a story and those kinds of things so uh, that is coming up uh, let's see any announcements oh yeah we're coming up on one year of, of doing the podcast. And so thank you for being a part of this show for this long. I don't know that I've ever done anything consistently except for breathe for a whole year. So well, that's not true. I've been I've been married for 20 and I've been a parent for several. So I've, I've done a few things uh, consistently for years and years. But um, for doing something like a podcast, uh, I really didn't know how long this would go. And I'm so glad that it's lasted at least a year. Um, and so thank you for coming along for the ride whenever you hopped on to the train. This is great. Um, so uh, without further ado, uh, I want to uh, get to uh, this week's chapter, but I want to catch you up in case uh, you have missed a few episodes or this is your first one jumping in. If this is your first episode to jump in on Showdown in the Yukon, I would hop back to episode 17. That's where the whole adventure starts. I'm going to skip a ton of detail in this overview, but there's a quartet of adventurers who started out in uh, Gooden Gulch, California. Uh, this was uh, Gladys Finch and her daughter, Lucy. Gladys is a widow and uh, her gold claim up in the Yukon territory got stolen from her by a man named Cornelius Brown and she wants to get it back. So to do that, she hired a guy named Max Sutherland who is a con man who has turned legit and he is now a lawman, and he goes to Good and Gulch to hire his old partner in crime, Monterey Jack Danvers, who is also he's a old he's a pickpocket. He's a young teenage guy who's trying to go straight and find his way in the world. Uh, but all four of them get together and have traveled through a lot of adventure to get up to the Yukon Territory where they have confronted Cornelius Brown. And when last we uh, left Cornelius Brown, he was hopping mad. Uh, he thought that folks from the neighboring town of Penny Canyon had uh, come in and tried to steal some things from him, not knowing that this quartet of adventurers is essentially living in his root cellar. And so he's gone off in a rage. And now the question is, what next is going to happen uh, with with him? So um, that's where we are. Uh, thanks for being here. And we will get to chapter 35 in Showdown in the Yukon right after these words from our sponsors. And just before we get into this chapter of Showdown in the Yukon, I wanna let you know that its sequel, which is called Shell Game, is now available for pre-order at amazon.com. 
I don't know why Amazon does this, but the only thing you can pre-order is the Kindle version of the book. It will also come out in paperback and hardcover in February. So uh, keep a lookout for that. But if you would like to pre-order your Kindle copy, of Shell Game, which carries this story uh, on into the future. Uh, you can do that over at uh, Amazon.com. I would appreciate it if you did. And now here is this week's chapter. Chapter 35. The shaking of Monterey's shoulder woke him from sleep. He felt the presence of someone close. Something doesn't feel right. It was Mac. Monterey tried to force his eyes open. What is it? Mac shook his head. Don't know. He paused and looked around the cellar. Monterey looked too. He saw Lucy and Mrs. Finch still sleeping. All seemed the same as when they went to sleep. Mac, go back to sleep, said Monterey as he laid back down. Mac jerked him back up. We've been down here for hours, Mac said. I would have expected to hear the villain's footsteps above or some other kind of ruckus. So... Just in case I was wrong about how much time has elapsed, I crept up to the closet door. You know the one that goes up to the house proper? It is right now as daylight as daylight can get, but the house feels as still as a tomb. What are you driving at, Mac? asked Monterey, suddenly awake. Whatever happened last night? I don't think Mr. Brown has come back. Maybe he's not coming back. It took a moment or two for Monterey to read between Mac's lines. If by some miracle Mr. Brown had been killed or run off by the folks in Penny Canyon, then the house and the mine were effectively up for grabs, and it would not be difficult for Mrs. Finch to claim possession. However, if the four of them were found inside the house and Mr. Brown was only delayed in his return and found them there, it would be a brand new battle the foursome could not fight. Maybe we should scout it out, Monterey said. Let the women sleep. It's like you were reading my thoughts. Maybe we even figure out how to crack the safe and get our hands on the claim. Mac's smile glinted in the lantern's light. Maybe, Monterey said as he stood and stretched some life into his stiff muscles. He could feel the claim still securely tucked underneath his shirt. Mac led Monterey up through the cellar, checked one more time for any activity in the house, and then crept out. Daylight poured through the many windows. The bevels around their edges split the light into sporadic rainbows throughout the room. The uneasy feeling of being alone in the house with a tyrant somewhere on the loose remained, Monterey walked up to the large window in the green room first thing to see if he could make out the fate of Penny Canyon. A thin gray line of smoke snaked its way up to the heavens. He wondered what, if anything, was left of the buildings and people. But something else nagged at Monterey's mind. Not only was the house still, but so was the whole property. None of Mr. Brown's men were around. He had no idea what the normal operation of the mine would look like at that time of day, but nothing was happening. It was as if all time and activity had stopped. I don't like it, Monterey said. Makes my skin crawl. What do you suppose that is? Said Mac, who had joined Monterey at the window. He pointed to a lone horseman headed their way, the dark figure standing out clearly against the snowy background. You think it's him? Asked Monterey. I can't imagine who else. Why is he alone, I wonder? Yeah, Mac said slowly. Neither of them could take their eyes off the approaching rider. Something didn't seem right about the rider, though. He rode with purpose, not like someone returning home. Monterey also noticed that the shape of the rider looked less and less like the bear of a man who had been waiting for him in the dark. I don't think that's Mr. Brown, he said. You think so? Mac paused. If it's not Brown, then who? Just then, the creak of a floorboard spun Mac and Monterey around. It was the Finches. What are you two up to? 
asked Mrs. Finch. The house was quiet, so we decided to look around, said Mac. We're about to have a visitor, Monterey said. Mrs. Finch walked to the window to see what the men saw. After squinting for a long moment, a broad smile spread across Mrs. Finch's face, and she almost ran to the front door, opened it wide, and stepped out onto the front porch. The rest of them joined her. She began to wave her hands above her head, and she called out one word that put everyone's fears to rest. Hank! She called out and ran down the steps to greet her old friend. Mr. Moody! Hank pulled his horse to a stop and jumped onto the ground. I'm so glad I found you all in one piece. I didn't know what I would find when I got here, but I had to get here as soon as I could once things settled down back in town. What happened last night? Monterey asked. We feared the whole town burned to the ground. Well, I'll tell you, Hank said. The town is pretty banged up, but I think the worst is over. Cornelius Brown will no longer be bothering us. What does that mean? asked Lucy. It was a question that was on everyone's mind, but they were too excited or afraid to ask it. Was the cloud of injustice finally at an end? Hank spoke about the events of last night with a level of gravity that surprised Monterey, especially knowing how lowly all who were near Mr. Brown regarded him. I was sleeping in the jail as I sometimes do. It has a bed and as much comfort as my little shack does. I anyway, the telegraph machine woke me. A message from that contraption always only means one thing, or it did until last night. There would be some new demand on us from Mr. Brown, and the whole town would have to comply, especially the men on the morning shift. So, I got up and read the message. It said Brown was coming with torches. Something told me we were in for a rough night. I got the word out as soon as I could. The town was not very well off after the last bit of fiery abuse he sent, and I was as sure as I could be that this time we would defend our homes as well as our businesses. You understand, Mrs. Finch. I sent a call on the telegraph down to the ranch and got the other men of the town awake enough to greet Mr. Brown and his men. Now, he either drove faster than we expected, or we got the message later than we wanted, but Mr. Brown and his men were on us before we could take a solid defense. They overran us with torches and guns ablazing. There must have been thirteen of them in total. First building to fall to the flames was delivery, then Billy's. Maybe if we'd had some time to rebuild, it would have taken more time to destroy. The whole town soon was a fiery furnace. There was only confusion as people ran here and there, women trying to shelter their children, men trying to find a place to shoot back. All the while, Brown and his men ruthlessly destroyed the town. I don't know what set him off, but it was worse than the most violent mine explosion I have ever seen. Somewhere in the chaos, Buck and the other ranchers must have arrived. Buck, who happens to be the best hunter anywhere, found a perch on the roof of the jailhouse. One by one, Mr. Brown's men began to fall until all that was left was Mr. Brown. Buck hollered at him to drop his weapon and leave town. Mr. Brown, as stubborn as they come, looked Buck dead in the eye and shouted, You want the mine for yourself? Come and take it! Then Brown leveled his pistol up at Buck, but Buck was able to get off around just in time. He ended Mr. Brown almost like David and Goliath. One bullet between the eyes. It took us till now to get all the flames out. And then I realized I didn't know what had become of you. I figured you all must have been Brown's first victims. I'm so relieved to see you alive and well. Hank said this last statement to Mrs. Finch primarily. I know this may sound odd, 
but several folks are organizing a celebration of sorts tonight. We are burned and battered, but it's a brand new chapter in our small town's life. A chapter of light breaking through the darkness of events finally swinging our way. So I guess the mine is mine, Mrs. Finch said simply, and smiled. Somewhere in this house is the claim document, and once I find it, no one will be able to take it from me again. Till then, I think we can all have a gentleman's agreement that it's my land, and I'll move forward in production accordingly. It was at this moment Hank Moody started to get tongue-tied. He hemmed and hawed a bit before saying, I don't think it will be as easy as all that, Mrs. Finch. Her look of confidence dropped back into a scowl. What do you mean? asked Mac. I was hearing from the men of the town, and, well, he stammered, the town is banged up pretty bad. We'll almost have to start from the ground up again. The men who work the mines have seen no money in a while, and what money they got paid was well below the agreed price. It'll take months to get the town resupplied. Out with it, Mr. Moody, Mrs. Finch spat. No one wants to remove you from your land. You have that coming to you. No one argues that, he said. But? But the town elders feel a right to some of the profits from this mine, as it was built on the backs of our fathers and sons. The elders will pay you a visit soon. Given the state of things, I would not refuse them. You want to have a neighborly relationship with the town. Is that right? She said. There was a visible change in her face, and not for the better. Monterey was not sure if she was about to head into town and torch whatever was left. And the ranchers, too, said Hank. The ranchers? asked Lucy. The cattlemen you met when you came out of the Lincua? To get their water from Mr. Brown for nothing, they had to protect the land and sell whatever stock they could. Of course, ever since Mr. Brown dammed up the river, there has been less and less to graze the cows on, so their livelihood has become less and less. Naturally, they feel entitled to some compensation. Naturally, said Mrs. Finch. The corners of her jaw rippled under her clenched teeth. Monterey knew the slightest comment would set her rage free, so he stood there and kept his mouth shut. After a moment, she looked at Hank and said in the evenest tone she could manage, Mr. Moody, might I ask a favor of you? Anything, he nodded. Are you aware of my kin residing to the east of here? Yes, ma'am. Would you please take my daughter, Lucy, with you and implore them to visit me here on my land? Tell them the righteousness of our clan demands their intervention. Mama? Lucy began before the steel-cold look of Mrs. Finch silenced her. Mr. Moody, will you do this? Will you do this for the honor of my husband? Mrs. Finch asked. He nodded. Then five minutes later, she said to no one in particular, If it's a war they want, then let's have us a war. So I've been hinting at this for a couple of weeks now. Uh, this chapter kind of highlighted um, an aspect in this particular story that was kind of interesting to me. Um, if you uh, have not been uh, listening to this podcast regularly, then you may not know that uh, Showdown in the Yukon was a story that I have been trying to write for years. I uh, had this uh, notion somewhere based on the parable of the, the guy who um, is out in a plot of land 
and discovers a treasure in the land and then buys up the land, uh, sells everything that he can in order to acquire that land because he knows that the treasure in the land is greater than what he possessed at the time. Um, this is a story, a teaching story that Jesus told. And um, somehow out of that story, this thing uh, called Shoda in the Yukon eventually uh, became uh a reality, I guess. Um, but it, it took on a lot of iterations and there's a lot of frustration, a lot of false starts. And I uh, encountered a couple of different writing tools that helped me finish the book in a way that um, there's a there's a character arc for the hero. There's a satisfying um, yet surprising conclusion to the story and all those things. Um, one of those I've talked a lot in recent weeks is this editing tool called The Story Grid, and you can find more about that at storygrid.com. There's a book. It is not an easy read, and it is kind of complicated, but it is super helpful on really knowing what is at um, sort of at a base level for being able to A, outline your book, and then once you've written your book, be able to know what is broken and needs to be uh, fixed in 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 revisions. Um, there is a podcast too called the story grid. Um, currently <laughs> it's kind of weird. Um, the editor uh, who wrote the book, Sean Coyne is super cerebral and is taking a very deep dive in some psychoanalysis of character and Jungian psychology and all this kind of stuff. It's very thick and I'm, it's kind of weird right now. If you jumped all the way back to the beginning of episode one of Story Grid, it's a lot more enjoyable and you kind of get more of the flavor of what is going on uh, to be helpful in writing a story if that's what you're trying to do. But another piece of advice that I got was uh, there aren't that many plots out in the world. Uh, you can you go to Amazon now or go to uh, your favorite bookstore and you can find books on writing that will talk about certain numbers of master plots. Um, they're just not that many. Uh, really uh, at a foundational level, there aren't that many stories out there. And so um, at one level, find a story that's successful, that you know works, and then take the spine of that and then write your story on top of that. And uh, possibly a little too on the nose, I, one of the things that I enjoyed about The Hobbit was uh, something that was going to help with this whole series. And that was this pearl that uh, Monterey located in this cave. And that's... Um, uh, Shodan in the Yukon is part one of a three-part series called the Pearl Saga. And so that was a, a very important part. So I really liked how the Hobbit um, utilized this, uh, the ring and what that turned into. And I could use that for the Pearl in more interesting ways with my different than what Tolkien did. But, you know, I didn't know how to finish a story. I'm really bad at that. So I wrote Shodan and the Yukon on the spine of The Hobbit. And if you reread The Hobbit, there's a lot of differences between The Hobbit and Shodan and the Yukon, but there's a ton of similarities as well. One of the things I noticed is when I think about The Hobbit and what the main purpose of The Hobbit is, it is to vanquish the dragon Smaug, that the whole point is that the dwarves have hired Bilbo to uh, cross the wilderness, to get to the Lonely Mountain, and to fight Smaug so that they can reclaim uh, the gold that is in the mountain. And I buy that, and I read it, and it's great. And then there comes this point where I'm 
kind of unsatisfied with how Smaug dies. Um, there's this conversation he has with Bilbo, and that seems kind of cool. And then he flies off in a rage and goes to the town. And then rather easily, as far as stories go, he is shot through a very convenient hole in his scales by the Black Arrow through, um, I can't remember his name now, a dude from Dale, Bard, I think maybe his name. Um, and the dragon is killed. It's really kind of easy in, in all retrospect. And our hero has nothing to do with it, really. Uh, maybe he tells the, the thrush bird that there's this hole. I, don't, I can't really remember, uh, but it's relatively simple. And um, that said to me that really Smaug is not the villain of the story. We think he's the villain the whole time that he's going to be this big, bad monster that we're going to have to overcome. And it turns out he's not the villain. The story goes on for quite a while after the villain dies. So um, Smaug can't be the villain in the same way. Uh, this story showed in the Yukon is kind of built up to uh, this confrontation with Cornelius Brown, which kind of ends not that satisfactorily. He rides off in a fury and we find out that he kind of, as far as the story goes, he died kind of easily and it's kind of over. But this is chapter 35 and the book ends in chapter 46. So there's more story to go. So Cornelius Brown can't be the real villain. And that was kind of a revelation to me that um, in reality, I think Smaug and in this case, Cornelius Brown fit more within this story um, me mechanism or thing that uh, Alfred Hitchcock called the MacGuffin. And the MacGuffin is something that is really important for the characters and it drives them forward, but ultimately it is meaningless to the reader. Uh, the reader could care less about what happens to Smaug. Uh, the reader is relatively uninterested in what happens to Cornelius Brown because now we're hooked into Bilbo's transformation or Monterey Jack uh, Danvers' transformation. And so we're going to discover that the continuing villain, and if uh, the um, definition of a villain is someone who is standing in opposition to the hero achieving uh, their goals, then really the villain, I think, in The Hobbit is and has been for the whole story was Thorin Oakenshield comments uh, uh, in the comment section, please. Um, and in this case, the villain is Gladys Finch for a showdown in the Yukon uh, because um, neither one of those people wanted the hero to join. Uh, they've been uh, kind of uh, against all the efforts, have been very critical of the hero and all these things have been happy to ditch uh, the hero altogether, both uh, Mrs. Finch and Thorin would have been happy to get rid of the heroes. And you will discover, at least in The Hobbit, same thing will happen in Showdown. The story wraps up really fast when Thorin dies. And I'm just going to spoil this now uh, because it's written on the back of Hobbit. Mrs. Finch, um, how she dies, I'm not going to tell you that, but she will die. And the story wraps up pretty quickly. But it's, it's once the villain is vanquished ultimately that um uh the the story wraps up and the hero either you know they win or lose and we're going to discover at what level 
uh, Monterey Jack, um, he wins or loses, but uh, that that's kind of an itch. It was an interesting discovery to me as I was putting this book together. Um, kind of that like, oh, this whole time I thought that Tolkien didn't know how to write a book at some level um, because both in uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy and in The Hobbit, the main thing that you thought the story was all about happens and then there's a lot more story at the at, at the end, um, which is a discussion for another time, the difference between plot and story. But uh, anyway, I thought I would... Uh, just let you down into uh, my my brain a little bit on uh, story structure and interesting things about um, the the characters and what their role is in the story. Uh, what what function do they they serve? So anyway, that's that. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of uh, the Brian Thomas Crop Podcast. Uh, if you have not told a friend about this show and you enjoy it, let them know. They might enjoy it too. Leave ratings and reviews. That lets people you don't know uh, enjoy the show. They can find it that way. You can also, if you haven't yet, uh, jumped over to um, brianthomascrop.com and sign up for my reader group. If you do that, you can, uh, just for the, the mere exchange of an email address, I will send you a bunch of other stories that I've written, but you also will get some updates from me. One thing that I haven't mentioned um, is that uh, the sequel to Showdown in the Yukon, which is called Shell Game, it's coming out in uh, ebook and paperback and hardcover at the beginning of February. And if you're listening to this in real time, this is January of 2022. It's coming out in February of 2022. But I am releasing a chapter a day and have been since the beginning of January over at brianthomascrop.com. So you can get a free uh, looky-loo at Shell Game even now just by hopping over to brianthomascrop.com and click on the blog link and that will take you to uh, all the chapters that are currently out for Shell Game. So you can check that out for, for nothing. Um, Anyway, uh, that's it for uh, this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you have a great week and we will see you back here next time.